All right. I believe we have a question. Okay. I got it on the email and I forgot to bring it, so now the very person is going to speak it. Okay. So a couple of classes ago, you explained Moan, Bodhi, Ahankara, and Chitwa. Chit, yeah. Okay. And um, you also mentioned how we often read the term mind stuff in various interpretations of those things, and that you said you can just throw that oh, away, gosh, it doesn't I mean re- anything. I remember now what this question is. Okay, That's so why the I question, So my okay. question is, from Patanjali and yoga and our point of view, what is the mind, and what do we do? Is it, is it useful for us to even think about it, or should we just like, you know? Well, see, the... Huh. We read about mind stuff in the translations of Patanjali, which Swami Kriyananda calls universally terrible. And he calls them universally terrible because when you take these Sanskrit terms and put them into certain English words, you end up utterly bewildered because there's the word mind. What is the mind? And it's used in so many different ways and means so many different things. I don't particularly think it's useful to try to figure out what the mind is because it's just too inexact an English word. If you're going to ask a question that's related to something, um, you know, that's something specific about a state of consciousness that we want to understand, but the concept of mind is just abstract, and why bother when you have mon, buddhi, ahankar, and chitta? Because it's much more, then you're really talking about something that you can actually do something about. Is that fair? English is not a good language for these things. I mean, just today, actually, I was talking to someone also who, you know, people say, well, I'm going to go back to the original source, and uh, she was trying to understand something in the precepta lessons, which are the lessons that Master wrote in the 1920s and 1930s, and, you know, we all got really excited, oh, we'll get these lessons, but they're very, very hard to understand, because Master just put them out in this tremendous flow, and he made up all these English words I mean, he just used English words to try to say things that were not sayable in English. And then when you just stare into them and try to parse them apart, intellectually or analytically, they don't. It's not that you can't get a lot of energy from those lessons of masters, but um, they're just hard to understand. As Swami says in real simple terms, they needed editing. Because master just put out an intuitive vibration that he attached words to. I, I don't want to say that too strongly because I really have never studied them. I have had them all for decades. But every time I get them and I try to read them, I don't find them more enlightening than Swamiji's commentary on the Bhagavad Gita, which we now have more recently. In previous years, I was just sort of at sea. Well, there we are. There's Master Precepted Lessons. I don't understand them at all because I just... I get a feeling from them, but I, can't get, I couldn't get clear concepts from them myself. Now with Patanjali and uh, the Gita commentary especially, I just feel like everything subtle is clear in those books, in that book especially, the Gita commentary especially. So I don't have to try to understand it from a difficult source when I can understand it from a simple source. That's just... Because um, I don't thrive on confusion... And so, if something confuses me, I seek an alternative to it, (laughs) rather than to just beat my head against it. Is that fair? And the word mind, I think, is one of those. Honestly, I wouldn't have any idea how to define it. I know in German's even worse, they tell me. That in German, there's just, 
they really just don't have words that even come close sometimes. And they have to just really make up, uh, make up things. The German teachers were telling us they have to just make up phrases because there's no English equivalents at all. Is that, is that? Okay. Okay, so you, in your explanation, you mentioned phrases that are trying to explain various states of consciousness. Right. It seems to me that that phrase there, states of, different states of consciousness, is the more, would be the more useful thing to explore rather than what is the mind and all that. No, exactly right. States of consciousness are something very specific, and you kind of know what you're talking about. All of this, we don't know what we're talking. I don't know what I'm talking about. You know, I'm, yeah, I don't know what I'm talking about a lot of times. But I can, I can give you insights from what it looks like from the bottom of the well. And, uh, and, and since, with all due respect, there's a lot of us in the bottom of the well, then that perspective is helpful to us. Okay, fair enough. Um, do you want to just prop that door open because it feels hot in here to me tonight for some reason? Okay. Yeah, maybe just a window. I, it, okay, just one, one or two windows would be fine. Thank you. All right, now, any other questions before we go on? If we just open one, we'll get a cross-ventilation. Yes, Sarah. Uh, <clears throat> just a comment that I thought was interesting. I was listening to Class 3 today, and uh-huh. that's when you talked about um, Swami's letter right, that Easter. he wrote. right. And it, it, that you weren't sure what was going to happen, but then it, it did, talking about sure. that he was going to, he was ready to leave. You can say leave. the actual word, he was going to leave he his was body. Leave. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he did. And he I definitely thought, did. I thought it was interesting. Well, it was as clear a goodbye letter as you could have read. That's right. Um, here, we, they, um, they actually, let's see, the last public talk he gave was on Easter Sunday which was a few weeks ago. And that letter was written at Easter, and Swami sat in Assisi, and Sahaja had translated it into Italian, and so she read that letter in Italian. They've now posted that talk with English subtitles. So you can listen to Swami's voice and read the subtitles. Um, it's very, very... It, it just came out in the Ananda Palo Alto newsletter, um, or I suppose you can go to the Assisi website. I don't know exactly where it is. But here's something so interesting... The last words of his talk, Swami said, um, the last words of his talk, he said, if you know how much God loves you, you would die for joy. That, those were the last things he said. And then the talk was over, and then he said, I want to try to get the line exactly, I can't remain, so you must continue. I can't remain, so you must continue. That was actually the last thing he said. But all he meant was, I can't remain here in the Sunday service. You have to finish it without me. But it was really that he's just standing up and he says very quietly, I can't remain, so you must continue. He said that Master gave a lot of hints on the way to his passing as well. Well, Swami wrote it out with a broad brush, but we, just were, all, we were all just saying 91, 91, not 86, 91. <laughs> But it was, you know, everybody was freaked out because that seemed like a goodbye letter. Well, it was. So there you have it. Yeah, we're all still getting used to it. Okay, anything else? Yes, Stephen. 
I've been kind of sitting on this for a few classes, but since Swami passed, it became more um, to the fore. We were talking about Swami as a Jivan Mukta in an mm -hmm. earlier class, right. which, you know, it kind of opened my eyes in a way. And, I, you know, it, I'm sure it's true for a lot of us, since Swami's passing, we're just viewing things in a different manner and certainly feeling things differently. When we were in the trial, I was sitting in the courtroom and I wanted to hear Swami's testimony. I went there specifically. Right. He said certain things. There were certain allegations. A lot went back and forth. Pause for just a moment. I don't mean to mess up your camera, but I don't have the capacity to stand tonight. For some reason, I feel a little lightheaded. Otherwise, I feel totally enthusiastic. So let's just do this and you'll just have to figure out the camera. Good luck. Okay. <laughs> yes, Stephen, go ahead. So at... At the time, certain things came out, and they were, and, and I was very happy to be there when Swami was testifying because right. basically he was asked, why did this happen, why did that happen? He said, I was weak. Yeah. And it seemed perfectly appropriate and very satisfying as an answer. In light of us talking about him as a Jivan Mukta, right. and now with his passing, what was happening? Was he working out the remnants of his karma? Was, were there lessons that he was bringing to the fore for others? Hmm. Um, what Stephen's referring to, in case anybody doesn't know, is that when Swami, the, there was a sexual harassment suit filed. Actually, it was an employment discrimination suit filed. It was such a mess. But the, um, uh, the essence of it, the accusations were that Ananda was a sham organization in which women were second-class citizens, in which the men, systematically led by Swami, took advantage of all the women, including sexually. One of the reasons that the, the, the actual trial that we went through turned out to be such a disaster for us, I mean, there's a whole lot of reasons why it was. As Swami says, though, I'll finish this thought first. The law of averages says, says that at least a few things will go right for you, and when everything goes wrong, you know that Divine Mother is running the show. So by the time we got to that trial, absolute, absolutely everything went wrong. Everything went wrong. So we just, it was fate. But one of the reasons a lot went wrong is because the charges were so preposterous, just so over-the-top insane, that we didn't take them seriously. I mean, we just thought this could be unraveled so easily that anybody who has anything to do with Ananda knows that women are fine in this community. So we just never thought about it. And we never... We had already been in the SRF lawsuit, and it was hard slogging, but we had an extremely capable and fair-minded judge, so if we just slogged our way through it, the tr truth came out. When we got into the Bertolucci lawsuit, which is the name of the employment discrimination suit, um, we had a, a terrible judge who actually was totally biased against us and did everything he could to make it impossible for us to succeed and sanctioned us issued sanctions against us that forbade us to defend ourselves against the key issues in the lawsuit. So, you know, there was no chance of winning. Okay, that all being said, Swami was accused of being a sexual pervert who was entirely there to take advantage of women. Um, the, what Swami actually testified to is that Master made me a monk when I was 22, and in the first, uh, what would that be, from 1948 to, you know, 1980... The first 35 years of my life as a monk, I wasn't always perfectly celibate. And that was what Swami said. But 
did Swami ever take advantage of a woman? You know, did he ever force himself on anyone or anything like that? The answer to all those questions is no. And the, by the time we were having that trial, you know, they were talking about things that had happened 30 years previously. I mean, it was insane. And we were not allowed to defend ourselves, and even Swami wasn't allowed to. However, Swami just said, yes, you know, yes, that did happen. Not exactly as it's described, but yes, that did happen. Yes, that did happen. The question you asked me as to what was really going on in that circumstance, to tell you the honest truth, I really don't know. And I have actually, this is, this is as much as I've been able to come to. Whenever it was put forward to Swamiji that either this was personal karma for him or personal karma for Ananda, he repudiated that very strongly and said this was karma for the yoga movement, this was karma for master's work, um, um, and karma for spiritual teachers in general. And Swami, during that period of time, wrote a book called uh, Guru's Celibacy and Spiritual Authority, in which he just tried to talk about this completely unrealistic idea that people have of, of the, essentially what he was saying, of the process of self-realization. Okay, I'll give you a few other pieces of this. This is really a very big subject, but let me just think about some more of it. Um, what I've come to understand is, okay, Swamiji was in his last incarnation. That's how Brighu put it. That's how Master put it to him. That's how he himself just freely stated it. We had his Brighu reading. Brighu said, I usually tell people about their next lifetime, but you're not going to have one, so I'm going to tell you about a couple of your old ones. I mean, it was just a straight statement like that. I mean, you know, it's not like Brighu has to be accepted like that, but Master said the same thing about him, and Swami said the same thing about himself. So you're looking at a man in his last incarnation. You're looking at someone who, who says, you know, yes, it was a battle I had to fight, but when he lamented to Master about um, sexual temptation, Master's response to him was, oh, it's not deep in you, you'll overcome it. I mean, just kind of like, just tossed it off as nothing really serious to work about, worry about. Um, and then Swami himself said, by the time the Baralucha trial was happening, which was like 1990, he said, it's just gone for me. It's like, it's not, it's not controlled, it's evaporated. And that was when he sat at the dinner table with about six or seven couples and said to us, Oh, he said, I know you're all married and so on. He said, but you have no idea. Once the illusion is gone, the delusion is gone, you can't imagine why it ever attracted you. And he wasn't just talking about sex per se. He was talking about the whole uh, gender issue, identification with one gender, attraction to another, um, you know, the physical sensation. So I even made an interesting comment. He said, I'm not ticklish anymore. (laughs) Yeah, he just said it's sort of like the whole way that you feel the body. Once you transcend that temptation, it's just gone. Now, um, I think, I'd say I always work backwards with Swami. I, I, because this is just the way I am. I've, I, my experience of his consciousness 
has always been so profound that when he does something, rather for me, rather than that undermining it, I, I feel like, wow, isn't that interesting? Given what his state of consciousness is, if this is what has happened, what does that tell us? And I think what it tells us is it tells us a lot about you know, what it means to really overcome this aspect and how a person lives through you know, the, that cycle, what, the, uh, what it looks like. We have these really narrow puritanical ideas of right and wrong and this is good and this is bad and this one has fallen and this one is... And that's what Swami addressed in his pamphlet about... Because at the same time that this was happening to Swami Kriyananda, there was a similar experience happening in almost every other ashram. And Swami himself said, all the others just went down. And Swamiji was the only one who just stood against the flow like that. And he wouldn't buy into the... Um, there was a, a movement of the Ananda community, uh, not the Ananda community, but of people, well, Swami needs to confess and say he's sorry. And he just sort of looked at us and said, I don't owe you people any explanation. It's like, I've never asked anything of you. I've never demanded anything of you. How dare you? But I also felt that, and he also said, you know, this is not who I am. He said, whatever happened in the past, this is not who I am. And, and the understanding was so incredibly exaggerated by the lies and the lawsuit that what people were trying to put upon him, he just wouldn't touch. But he also said, I'm proud of, he said it very frankly, I'm proud of my life. I have nothing to be ashamed of or to apologize for. Because, and then I really felt we have no idea what's really going on in his consciousness. You know, what this is really about. And then elsewhere, in something that Swami published more recently, and I don't remember where now, it just goes out of my head, but it was something that was everybody read. He talked about, it might even be in this book, he talked about a woman acquaintance of his, a woman friend of his, who was told by uh, two different, very advanced yogis in India, whose names are, I know the names of them, but I won't say them, they're very well-known, very advanced yogis in India, both of whom who said to her if she would have sex with them, she would get great spiritual blessings. You remember reading that? She, in both cases, agreed, and she herself was a very advanced spiritual person. I think she just looked at this and thought, you know, what an interesting idea. And uh, in both cases, she felt that what had been promised her had not been given to her. But... Swami wrote, and I felt too, even from the first he told this story, how did she know? How could she know? Whether she went into a state of samadhi or not. But, and what Swami wrote was that he felt she got very good karma because she was helping these very advanced souls you know, work out some last vestige of their own uh, karma that they had to figure out. And you know, there is such a thing as tantra yoga, and it's, it's not recommended, and I don't know that much about it, but there's, there's this sort of way of overcoming desires by entering into them, but not entering into them in the way the West teaches Tantra Yoga. Oh, we get more and more and more and more pleasure by using all these yogic techniques. True Tantra Yoga is exactly the opposite. You basically challenge yourself to be completely immune to, what, to the natural direction of your consciousness. So... 
was that what was going on? I just think, wow, I don't know. And I've pondered it a lot. You'll notice in the book I wrote about Swami, I didn't mention it. I didn't know what to say. And I haven't, it's not that I didn't mention because I wrote about the Bertolucci lawsuit. That's not true. But I, I really do not have a clear answer to this. And I have been thinking about it a great deal. And I had actually wondered if I would actually ask Swamiji about it. Because I never have as directly as I would like to. He's, he's implied a few things. And most of what's implied is written in the chapter on my book called The Bertolucci Lawsuit. I wrote that out as clearly as I could, as frankly as I could, with as much understanding as I had. But there's a piece of it that bewilders me. Just complete. How can a man who could wake up while they were still sewing his hip up be subject, you know, to to that kind of weakness? It doesn't. It it has never added up in my mind. Um, so there you have it. Yes. A, a, a residual bit of old karma that was had to be worked out. It's very obscure. You lived in a palace once and you still had a desire for it when they're avatars. Uh, yeah, it's just completely bewildering to me. It seems like something along those lines, some little piece of something that either, was either, at least yeah, my perspective, either needed for him karmically or for others or just in the mix. Well, they say Ajivan Mukta has karma that he could work out, but he just lets it run and then he resolves it. It's certainly true, and I don't like to get too woo-woo about these things because, you know, Swamiji was also a person and he had his life, and I don't like to get so far away from common sense that we've made a cardboard figure out of a very real person. Um, so I, that's why I'm like, I'm just sort of like not sure what any of this means. I, I On the Ananda Answers website, one day I wrote a small diatribe, which I haven't read in a long time, which basically says that, you know, the, the, the moralistic, puritanical, you know, how dare he, written by the most libertine people that have, you know, that completely tore our society apart because of their utter disregard for moral law. Um, it just is such a trivial story compared to the interesting story. The interesting story is, I don't know what's going on here. Isn't this fascinating? Yeah, it's a much more interesting story. Yes. Um, I just, it makes me think of uh, when you've talked about Swami getting married. Yeah, and that's entirely different, but we can talk about that too. Uh huh. Just because, you know, just from what I've heard, um, Ananda went through a time when there was the, all the monks and the nuns, and Swami felt that that had to shift more into partnership. Is this leading to another question, or is that the actual question? No, I'm just wondering if what he went through is is just um, along those lines of trying to see, well, monks and nuns aren't happening right now. Maybe um, there needs to be some partnership. Well, and when he really made the decision that Ananda needed to go in a householder direction, and when he really felt for Master that he was the one who had to who to demonstrate that, um, that he just made a conscious decision, and he repudiated being a swami. In fact, the most serious allegations 
against him actually happened when he wasn't even wearing orange, when he had repudiated the sun yesterday. That was the irony of the whole thing, just speaking of how 100% insane the legal procedure was. If you had any faith in the legal process, it was totally destroyed by going through that experience. I mean, I've only been called into the jury room into the jury pool once, but I will never be on a jury because the things I will say will get me off of the jury immediately, such as a jury doesn't have a clue as to what is really going on in a case. The jury that made the decision against us had absolutely no idea what was really going on. They really didn't, because the judge kept making all kinds of rulings that that determined how everything was done, and the jury was never informed they just saw the result of it, and they didn't have any, had no idea what was going on. But the issue of, you know, and Swamiji came out of the monastery. He was, he was a fully professed monk living in the security of a monastery, and then he was thrown out. And he had to start a community in the hippie era. You know, and as he writes, also, women are no respecter of men's positions. This whole, what I think is total baloney, almost all the time, where women claim to be these helpless victims. I, f- I find it so peculiar that women fought so, fought so hard to get equal rights, and then when it serves them, suddenly announce that they're completely helpless in the face of, you know, this man. And yes, of course, men are stronger than women as a rule, and bad things can happen. But wow, a lot of what... I'm embarrassed the way these women talk, and I'm really confused how they can play it both sides and not see it. There was a heck of a lot of that that went on in this. Oh, you know, but, but I know what I, the part that I did want to say. That karma was extremely important for the whole thing, for the whole history of Master's work and what happened here. You know, that lawsuit, that attack against us. So part of me just thinks Swami just played out a role that he just, it had to be played out. Because if there's any issue that's just a total confused mess in the minds of Americans, it's that, you know. In Europe, people were just like, what? There was a lawsuit over this? And, you know, you were actually, you know, you got a judgment against you? Like, what is this? But it was also, as I wrote in my book, it was the big lie. It didn't say that a man who became a monk at 22, you know, was not, did not always you know, in a handful of instances of consensual, had consensual sex with someone. That's not what the charge was. The charge was, as I said, that he was a perverted monster and so was Ananda. There was also the SRF influence in that case, which oh, yeah. led to a lot of those conclusions. And even now, in, the, in light of Swami's passing, the letter that came from SRF, the condolence, did not recognize him as a Swami. It was very clear. It was... Um, Yes, I'll just leave that. I mean, it was you know, clear enough, let's put it that way. Yeah, I mean, a letter came from... It was nice that they wrote, and they acknowledged it, but you see the whole... And that's the other side of it. The real battle, and the battle, Swami writes this in a place called Ananda, and the chapter called Karmic Influences, which is sort of to the back of that book. And it really talks about the struggle between institutional religion and individual inspiration... And it talks about it in terms of the Catholic and the Christian mission of Jesus and how Jesus' teaching was totally, has been totally messed up. And that Yogananda has faced exactly the same 
fight between institutionalizing his teachings and keeping it free and true self-realization. And that it, the way Swami writes it, that the outcome was not by, not by no means certain as to what would happen. And everything that has happened to denigrate Swami Kriyananda has been 100% empowered by SRF, literally paid for, bought and paid for in terms of the lawsuits, which is an unproved fact, but there's so much evidence, there's so much overwhelming evidence. But nonetheless, the energy of the constant attack is entirely because SRF supports it. And, just, and every individual who gets engaged in attacking Swami Kriyananda, almost all are explicitly involved in SRF, and even those who aren't are profoundly influenced by it. So it's just a far more interesting story. But not, and, and Swamiji's you know, own actions over the course of decades also just really was the gold leaf on the plot. You know, It just made it so capable of happening. I don't know. Once I asked Swamiji a really obscure question about Babaji and John the Baptist and Jesus and things like that, and it was over breakfast, and I said, Swamiji, I mean, why did it have to be like this, and why did it be like that? And you know, he put down his fork, and he, and he just put his hands out, and he went like that, <laughs> just shrugged his shoulders and made an expression of, how do I know? Then he picked up his fork again. <laughs> so this one for me comes down to, I don't know. I, and I've spent a lot of time trying to like get a real flash on it, and I don't have one. Okay? Works for me. Yeah, works for me. Somebody said when Swami stopped being a Swami, although we kept calling him a Swami, which is, also became an issue in the lawsuit, I called him Swami, meaning teacher, but then they said that was fraud because we were implying that he was still a Swami. It was, just went on and on. Um, uh, let's see, well, what, what was... Oh, yeah, someone said... Well, when he, you know, when, he, when he went out of orange and went first into lavender and then into white, um, at first I was concerned, this woman said, but then I noticed there was no change in his consciousness. <laughs> And that was, I thought that was an extremely astute way to put it. So she just shrugged her shoulders and said, I don't really know what he's doing, but he's just the same. So that's what he himself said. He, he said it at the beginning and then he pulled back from it. He said, it doesn't matter if I'm a monk anymore because in his words he used words, I've fulfilled the vow. And, you know, the, the detachment that the vow is meant to teach me, I've accomplished that, so how I live doesn't matter now. And I, he was a truthful man. He, he never said things like that. He never said anything that he didn't really mean. So who's to say? Okay. So, are we ready for Patanjali? <laughs> well, these are important issues, and that particular one was on my mind. has been on my own mind, because I'm, I have to write more about Swami, and I'm... You know, it's so just annoying, um, because we... We're, at the end of that lawsuit, the, the, the Bertolucci lawsuit, the employment discrimination lawsuit, <laughs> which escalated into something quite else, um, 
was so badly handled by the judge that it would have been overturned on appeal without question. There was no question that it would have been. It had the shelf life of a piece of fruit. That's what someone said. That's how long that verdict would have lasted. However, two things were going on at that time. Litigation was being used as an economic weapon against Ananda, and it was being financed, we're certain, by SRF with an unlimited amount of money and the determination to to just drive us down. That's, that's what people can do. If you're rich and your opponent isn't, you can win by bankruptcy. So we were absolutely on the edge of bankruptcy. Before the Bertolucci verdict came down, like a day or two before, they filed five additional lawsuits. And they had made an error in the first lawsuit and sued Ananda Nevada City, thinking we were only one corporation. Now they knew we weren't. So they sued all the communities individually, and they sued all the leaders individually. So we had a, a lawsuit against Ananda Palo Alto and a personal lawsuit against David and Asha. I'm not sure whether they sued every colony, but they certainly sued. So we had five more lawsuits. Before the verdict was in, we were, you know, thir- what was it then? Like we were, we'd spent $13 million, we were $3 million in debt. We'd exhausted, that's how, we doubled the mortgage on this property. I mean, we were pulling in the stops from everywhere. And then that comes in. And the only way you can stop litigation, the only thing that stops litigation is Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Otherwise, if you, don't, if you don't defend yourself, you lose by default. That's the American system. That's why you can use it as an economic lesson. Yeah, my respect for the legal system is way down. Um, so there we were. Um, we were already teetering on the edge, and we were facing five more, seven more lawsuits. I think it was five. It could have been seven. Um, plus... The whole thing had happened in the newspapers. The the damage was done as much by the newspapers, and the plaintiffs were soliciting as much bad publicity as they could possibly solicit, and everything that's filed in a lawsuit is exempt from the libel laws. How do you like that? So you can say anything, and you have no protection. And then it's, it's supposed to be figured out in the courts later, right? So it just has to say it's alleged, it was charged, it was testified. So, I mean, we were just being crucified. And everybody was more keen on, on destroying us than helping us. It was, you know, you remember, it was a fun time. <laughs> so we had no money to appeal. We were facing absolute just ruin. And we'd already been in litigation for a decade. And, you know, here we were. Well, that time only maybe eight years. Um, so we had to go into Chapter 11. And then we realized... One thinks, oh, it's on appeal and you're vindicated. No, 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 no. The verdict is wiped off the books and you get to have another trial. So what we would have won by getting an appeal was not vindication. We would have had to go back into court all over again. Another, you know, millions of dollar saga, another circus in the newspaper. It goes back to the same judge. And so, I mean, we... We looked at it. One, we, we had no money. Two, we needed to go into bankruptcy because we were going to be attacked on all these different fronts. And three, even if we won, we won nothing. We just won an endless, endless cycle of this same thing. And we said, if we don't get this turned over, we're ruined, we're toast for the rest of our lives. But even if we get it turned over, there's no guarantee that it won't just come back again and then it will just be another three or four million under. So we all just looked at it and we said, 
God is my judge. And we walked away from it. And we paid the price. The price has been steep. But even in bankruptcy court, just to finish this, just so you know what was really going on, in bankruptcy court, during the course of the trial, they, they got some, I will call them a prostitute and an accountant, to testify that Swam, the copyrights to Swami's books and music, which, you know, were not selling all that great, vastly inflated. They, they had this huge price on his uh, copyrights. How much, is, how much is your artistic output worth? It was a strange cycle. And this was all, I'm sure this was all calculated. So when we're in bankruptcy court, all of a sudden they have, quote, a buyer for the copyrights on all of Swami's books and music, an anonymous buyer willing to pay a million dollars for the copyrights to all his books and music. You're in bankruptcy court. You have to sell off your assets in order to pay your debts. And, you know, we came this close to, to losing all of that. Now, who is going to pay a million dollars for his copyrights? There's only one entity in the universe that would do that. But, and that was at the point at which we just put everything we had, paid the judgment, and just, got, we, you know, we had, we had to pay everything off in order to get it. But we were, we were inches away from it. And it's only by incredible hard work on the part of Vidura and Steve Weber and a few others, you know, who just really, it was, that was a drama that happened in the back room. But it was, you know, so who knows, but you can certainly see it was a lot of karma, but it wasn't karma. It was karma of these two forces. This one force that says we must control this teaching and define it, and the other force that says, no, this can be defined by anybody who's in tune, which is really what Swami was asserting. He wasn't asserting himself. He was saying it can be anybody can receive inspiration. And it was from the start, a theological dispute. SRF has gone the route that there are certain authorized channels and everybody is subservient to those authorized channels. And Swami has gone the route that if you're, anybody can receive inspiration and anybody who's in tune can be an instrument. But Swami's mere existence nullifies the other. Because the fact that this guy just, as soon as he was unauthorized, just didn't disappear back in 1962 but instead just kept rising and rising with all this self-evident power, it completely nullifies the principle over here. Plus the poor deers, they just, you know, it's sort of like they, they just kept underestimating us, as people do. People always underestimate Ananda because we're so nice and we're very polite and we listen and people say things and we say, oh, that's so interesting, you know. They just don't know what's underneath it. So what happened to the uh, seven or five lawsuits then? Oh, um, as part of the whole global settlement, we got rid of them. They were withdrawn. I mean, they stopped when we were in Chapter 11. And then by the time they finished the whole thing, everything everything was off the table. It was worked out somehow or another. I wasn't, by then I wasn't involved. That was all done from the other side. We avoided selling the copyrights because we raised the money to pay the judgment. If we hadn't been able to pay the judgment, we would have. The court would have ordered the, the sale of the copyrights. But you mean it was such a intense emergency that money was found? Yeah. 
Yep. The five to stay alive. Do you remember that? They came up with seven hundred thousand dollars in two weeks or whatever it was. The one to five, one thousand to five. That one to five to stay alive. I forgot that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, two hundred and fifty. Yeah, well, it was true. When we were two or all of that money was raised by three or four hundred people who don't make any money. So it was a miracle. There's no other word for it. We just, you know, we would rather die first. We weren't going to give up. But you see, what's so interesting, and let's go there for a minute. Prior to the lawsuit, the first, well, there, were, there was only one. Prior to 1990 when SRF filed the first lawsuit against us, you never saw Master's Picture anywhere. Babaji, Lahiri, Kriya Yoga, it was nowhere. Because um, SRF acted as if they owned everything. I mean, some poor... You know, a little musician would record the chants and they'd get a letter from the lawyer that, you know, they couldn't do that because those chants were owned by SRF. And you put Master's picture in your book, you'd get a letter from their lawyers. You can't put the picture in Master's book in your book because we own it. And so everybody all over the world knew that SRF's lawyers would come after you if you used anything and everyone presumed it belonged to them. And their sense of what belonged to them was basically everything. And so it was very, very tight. And in the course of our lawsuit, what was uncovered was that they didn't, in fact, own it. And our lawyer, for the closing argument of the, the remanded appeal portion of the SRF lawsuit, we'd already won the lawsuit. We won the, law, the whole lawsuit by 1994, which is why the Bertolucci case was filed. But then it went on and on and on, and finally a piece of it was turned back from the appeals court our judge said absolutely improperly they were wrong, but nonetheless we ended up with a trial. And our lawyer's closing argument, which was way over the heads of the jury, was Yogananda knew what he was doing from the very first minute that he did this. He very carefully steered his way through and held all the copyrights in his own hands. He never gave them to SRF. And SRF simply presumed that they had them and actually illegally renewed them. And so they owned their edited versions. And in the end, it was decided that they had some rights over the articles to the magazines. And as Swami says, I gave them, he gave them the sound recordings. We just didn't defend ourselves on it. But everything that Master actually wrote um, was in the public domain. And that's it. That's so, and so the fact that you can go everywhere and just see Kriya Yoga and all the gurus everywhere is a direct result of what we did. And just completely the fight for religious freedom. It just completely pulled the rug out from that monopoly that they had just claimed as their birthright, but Master had never actually given them. Because I mean, Master was very astute. He could have made it, he could have so easily actually given ownership to SRF, and he never did. And in the night before the closing argument, our attorney, it wasn't John Parsons, it was this man, wonderful man named uh, Rob Christopher. He just had, he had a flash of intuition. He made, I think he had a real experience of master. <laughs> that it just like, he suddenly realized that this is in fact what Yogananda had done. I, I mean, I said it went over the heads of the jury, Maybe I'm not being kind. It was a very sophisticated argument, and it was very good. He's a, he's a professional trial lawyer. I don't want to cast aspersions on him. He's a, he's a wonderful, successful trial lawyer. 
At the time, it seemed to me like a very sophisticated argument, but it seemed like exactly the right argument. The case was, the judge was furious because it was a copyright law case. And he said, no jury can understand copyright law. It's just loony. So, so tell the story again of what happened at the very end, where he, there was some kind of little thing the judge did and just managed to shut it all off without, you know? Oh, no, let me see if I'm remembering what you said. He I, said he did some tricky little thing he did, and they said, oh, yeah, it's okay, it's over. Well, the judge, at the end, the judge gave some slightly, we were slightly confused by some of his jury instructions. I think that's what you're referring to, because this was our very good judge. But in the end, it turned out to be, and now I can't quite conjure it up. But he gave some, some jury instructions we didn't quite comprehend, but the result of those jury instructions was to give us what we wanted, was to make it work. He, was just, he, had, he had reached his end. Oh, he'd way reached his end, but he had to maintain his position as a judge. And Swami Kriyananda felt that SRF had to win something. And so we did not defend ourselves against the sound recordings, although we could have infringement on the sound recordings. And, so, and then SRF did exactly what we expected them to do, which is they said, we won. <laughs> and so then it was over, because if they hadn't been able to say that, we might still be in court. It was a great experience. It was horrible. <laughs> but it was a great experience. Now all that came from your first question because somehow it all just ends up being, it's just all of a piece in the most fascinating, complicated web. Okay. I'm going to take a break before we go to Patanjali. Yeah, let's all take a break. It's very dangerous to get me started on that because I am such a wealth of information. <laughs> well, the question, the comment, is it people who are spiritually advanced being able to do something like this? Well, that's always been the question of the fact that Jesus was crucified by his, you know, his fellow Jews. And it, and it wasn't really the Romans who were after him. It was the other spiritual people. And the way Swami puts it is, in the persecution, always saints are persecuted by the church. You know, sometimes even condemned by the church. Because as Swami said, the, the worldly people don't even care. They don't see the spiritual people as any kind of a threat. They're not playing on the same field. It's, it's spiritual to spiritual that they see it. And uh, even the most evil of the lawyers who worked for SRF, you know, is a devotee of dayas, diamatas, and, and was himself, had a spiritual interest in things. But, you know, it's just... But it's, it's important... Diego, <laughs> because, and I'm not singling him out for those who are hearing this recording, <laughs> it was that he came for the Patanjali class. Um, it's important because, now where was I with that, with other spiritual people? Um, just, Particularly evil attorney. Yeah. Well, now I've actually, I really did lose the thought there. But it, it has a lot to do with becoming really serious about the spiritual path and understanding what it means. Yeah, that, that they were spiritually interested in that it's sometimes, standing up for a principle is not always all that easy. And it's just very, I'm, I'm sorry, I completely lost the thought. So I can't give it to you. I was going to say something genuinely useful and now I don't remember what it was. <laughs> 
Well, because other people don't care, but, you know, I was always much more sympathetic, oddly, because I was also one of the fiercest, most outspoken people about SRF, and I've never held back. I'm also more sympathetic, strangely, because I can, I know how you can get confused. I've, I know, I mean, I've gotten confused often enough in my own life that I realize you could start down a path and it really seems like a good idea, but if you make one little mistake and then two little mistakes and three little mistakes, above all, and I think their biggest problem was that once they were committed, they, they never allowed input that contradicted their position. To this day, there has been no SRF visit to any Ananda Center. So everything they know is not firsthand. And the other thing is, if you don't have the humility to re-examine your first principles and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is not going our way, Let's, we need to stand back. And that, for me, has served me a lot spiritually. When I find myself rolling down a hill and it's not working out, but I've staked out my position, I've, I learned a lot from this suit about as soon as you know that, doesn't matter how embarrassed you are, just stop. Because it, it gets worse after that. It doesn't get better, it gets worse. So whatever whatever point you realize you're wrong, no matter how humiliating it is, just take it on the chin because it'll be worse if you take it later. I'm just thinking at uh, at one level, you guys... I'm just thinking at one level, you guys were fighting over Master. If you consider how the Christians sort of fight over their claim to Jesus... Um, we were fighting over can... Master. We were fighting over different interpretations of his teachings. It was a theological dispute. It was never. It was never a lawsuit. They took a theological dispute and turned it into copyright and intellectual property. It was a complete distortion. It was never about anything like that. It, you know, it it sort of crammed itself into that, but that was never the issue. It was theological, but there's no there's no theological court these days. You know. But he was freed, so. Does anyone want a Patanjali Sutra? Okay. How about Sutra 1-6? Which <laughs> the last time we were here, which was three weeks ago, or two weeks ago, we almost finished it. This was the sutra that says, The vrittis are, this is a continuation from number five that says there are five classifications of vrittis, painful and painless. That's sutra number one, five. And number one, six says the vrittis are right and wrong conceptions of what is, imagination, sleep, and memory, all vrittis in stirring the waters of feeling, distort the reality that is soul bliss. Well, we went through the other qualities of the vrittis, but what we didn't get to is how it stirs the waters of feeling. Um, The main point in what's left here is um, one of the things we have to understand that Patanjali doesn't explain all that much that the commentary really gives us. Because once we start talking about these vrittis and being from past lives and all of the other experiences we've had before is that we start getting it into our mind that these are fixed realities that we're bound by. 
I was just, you know, just like we think about our physical body, what size we are, like by the time a person is grown, you are a certain height and that's the height you're going to be and you have to work with that. Your gender is fixed and so on. Um, and we begin to think of the vrittis as being even more of a fixed reality. So Swami wants us to understand um, how you direct your vrittis or inclination depends entirely on you. Because here, they, they just simply exist in these, they're just fields of energy. And he says, but one factor that can influence the way you use them is the company you keep. Environment which includes your companions is stronger than willpower. This is the whole basis of spiritual communities. Master came to America and urged people to band together repeatedly. And the reason he did so is because the way the planet is at this time, the age that we're living in, the influences on us are are in such a direction that our inclinations will have a tendency to, to go... Um, away from where we want them to go. And it's, it's so interesting because people struggle so much. We all struggle so much. But we don't always appreciate how extremely important environment is in our struggles. I mean, we're a small group of people who most of us live in community and we certainly have the community of the Sangha that we're always turning back to. When I first moved to Ananda village in uh, June of 1971. And I I moved to Ananda village from San Francisco, the city of San Francisco. The apartment I lived in was at 4th and Geary. For those of you who know the city, which is right in the middle of the city, a half a block from one of the sourdough bread companies, which was a very nice location in the middle of the night because you could walk over there and they would give you fresh break bread. They would give you the twisted cripples, they called them, that they couldn't sell. But that tells you how urban it was. I mean, it was right next to a bread factory, and it was, you know, it was, Geary's a huge street. And from that, uh, I moved to the meditation retreat, into a tent. Okay, it took me about 24 hours to forget I'd ever lived anywhere else. And over the course of the next few months, a very interesting realization began to come to me. I'd never lived close to nature, and I'd certainly never lived in an ashram, well, from San Francisco, we had no particular contact with anyone. So it was just like from complete, complete urban worldly to complete spiritual. Because the meditation retreat was not only Ananda, but it was way the heck back on, there on the other side of the planet with no electricity, so no access to any kind of, no telephones, no radio, no, no television, just nothing. And I realized that my whole life I had I had barriers around my consciousness. Without even knowing it, I, had, I was always holding my environment at bay. And when I w- entered an environment in which I, from which I didn't have to protect myself, it was an amazing experience to sort of realize how much energy was tied up in that protection. I mean, gradually... I mean, after living there in that really remote place for a period of time, well, after that we moved to Palo Alto, which is not fourth in Geary, but we, we get off of our ashram property really easily, and we're just in a complete other environment. After one learns to take down the, the barriers a little bit, 
then you can begin to develop inner magnetism and then living in this atmosphere has, you know, it, I've never had to re-erect those batteries, those barriers, because the magnetism is, is more inside at that point. But nonetheless, the influence and the, um, uh, the degree to which we are not we are not who we think we are, we are just the product of the environment we're living in. And that's where he goes on and says our thoughts are not our own. That we're just picking up thoughts from the the strata on which we're living. And if we find ourselves by choice or inclination or karma in an environment, I mean, we live in a missionary station is how I describe this. And Swami, you know, we live among the heathen because we're here to to bring enlightenment to the heathen, and you know I mean that jokingly. (laughs) But in a real sense, we had to, in order to bring Master's teachings to people, we had to come to where people live. It wasn't enough. For the first years of Ananda, we just lived way out in the boonies, and anybody who was sincere would just find us. It was kind of like up to them to put out the effort. But once we had enough solid, we have a divine obligation to bring this teaching to where people live. And, you know, many of you have been drawn to the path because of, exactly because of that decision in San Francisco or here. And, um, let me just, let me find the thought for a minute. It's an interesting thoughts keep going out of my head tonight. Uh, but, but what we have to appreciate is that Many times what, what we're just getting is what's surrounding us and we have to learn to become very um, focused in our own meditation practice, in our own sadhana, in our own attention to which way our energy is being drawn and have a lot of strategies inside us for combating those inclinations and not feeling that those inclinations are just inevitable. Um, it's, just, it's just a vibration that we tune into and we all know that, you know, in those moments when we tune into a really powerful vibration, we've all just been through this experience of Swami, Swamiji's leaving the planet and have had some just amazing moments of feeling his presence and uniting our energies together and being just sort of uplifted in ways we didn't even know were possible. Um, because of this change that's happened, we're receiving that. We're receiving that because we've decided to tune into it. We, don't, we wouldn't necessarily receive it otherwise. Because I talk so much about Diamata and SRF on this, it's very interesting. I've actually spent more time with Diamata than most SRF members, not in her satsangs, but personally, because in all in the most terrible circumstances, of course. But from the first moment I met her, she's never, she's never spoken to my soul, never resonated with my soul. And of course, you might say I'm not real open to her. But it's also true that it's just like, it's not there for me to receive. I trust that many people receive great inspiration from her, but I'm not on that wavelength. It's not, it's not where it's going to come, to for, for me, come from for me. And we need to train ourselves to just not be on the wavelength of the things that we don't want to receive. And one of the things that happens is when the wrong wavelength comes to us, as Swamiji said, Darkness always insists that we have to relate to it. (laughs) And he said it's one of the ways that Satan gets into us is that he persuades us that we have to take seriously whatever this temptation or this wrong thought is. But Swamiji gives us in here, 
his own example, I think it's in this place, about how when his mind sank, he began to feel that Master didn't really love him and he began to get into this mood. He just went and raised his consciousness. He didn't just spend a lot of time reasoning out whether that might be true or not. He realized that he was only receiving that thought because he'd allowed his consciousness to sink to the vibration where that thought existed. And so if we have vrittis that tend to pull us down to the vibration where that thought exists, we also have spiritual vibrations that we can use to bring us back up again. Um, And the more we recognize that it's not just a battle that has to be fought in solitude in the dark, that if we can rush out to get help, whether that means to go into the temple in the community to meditate, call a friend, to open a book, turn on a, a video, whatever it might be that we're looking for, um, we don't have to feel that we're trapped merely because it has been the inclination of our energy. The more impersonally we can see that. You know, AA uses that to perfection. You, if, you, if you're trying to get out of your addictions, you have a sponsor. And whenever you feel tempted, day or night, you call that sponsor. Because they realize that if somebody else's influence can get into you, you'll be able to resist the vritti. That the vritti does not own you. It only owns you if you leave yourself alone with it. And we need to understand that as devotees, we need to work as hard as the addicts do. Because we're addicted. Yeah, we're equally addicted to delusion. And it's sort of like we're all sponsors for each other in a very real sense. You know, we find each other. And... It's, it's a very important point, and all of you should remember this just really profoundly. If you ever find yourself in spiritual trouble, one of the first things that your mind, one of the things that your mind may tell you is, oh, well, I shouldn't go to the temple. I shouldn't go to Sunday service. And then your mind will say, I don't want to pull everyone down. That's what your mind will say. And, and it, it sounds convincing, but look at the result of that. And it's, it's a very interesting, un, you know, it's a very painful observation that I've had over the years that when people get in trouble, they will stop coming and then they'll drift away and I won't see them for a decade. Whereas some people, when they get in trouble, they rush right into the center and they cling all the harder. And they never fall into that thought, oh, I don't want to pull everyone down. I, my thought is, well, that's just too bad. You know, I'm going to just bring who I am to the situation and you're just going to have to help me. And when I feel better, then I'll help you. But today it's my turn. <laughs> yeah. I, I just wanted to say, I'm so glad I heard you say that before it ever happened to me because I watched my mind do it. This one time I was really feeling down and I watched it and it was just sort of like, you, you know, you'll pull everyone down. You're like, you'll be a Debbie Downer on the situation. And, you know, don't don't go. And then I realized, wait, 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 wait. Asha warned me about this. I remember this. And then I went and I felt so much better. And yeah. I was so thankful. And I didn't remember to thank you, but now I am. So. Okay. Very, no, but it's very true. I'm glad you just put an emphasis on it because that's called false reasoning. I think that's somewhere in Patanjali. False reasoning, I actually think it is. I think we may have even already said it before. Yeah, a false concept of what's right and wrong. And it's just, you're, and it's also, it's a question of how much do I trust my spiritual family? There's so many, because people, 
um, get barriers up against their spiritual family too. And you know, I'm talking about those barriers. I remember that first summer when I was at Ananda Village and I started going through all kinds of very difficult personal situations and you know, I was embarrassed. And I remember standing there, I remember right where I was standing, looking at this bulletin board in the little corridor between what was then the kitchen and then the dining room, none of that exists now. I was standing right there and I was feeling embarrassed because instead of being the nifty, you know, four-star devotee I'd planned to be, I was way down at the bottom of the list. And I became aware of the fact that I was extremely intuitive about everybody else's life and the chances were pretty darn strong that they had me pegged too. And that far from having, and this is the pleasant anonymity of living in, you know, at 4th and Geary, is that nobody knew me from Adam and even if they did, they mostly didn't give a damn. And now I'm standing in the middle of a spiritual community where people are just, you know, like we're on one nerve wire and everybody knows everything that's going on with me and it ain't pretty. Okay, so there I'm standing and I realized that that was an extremely important spiritual moment for me. And it was either you just accept this completely or you're never going to get any of the benefit of this community. Because if you barricade yourself against that permeability, I mean, see, it's the permeability that makes it powerful. It's the uniting of consciousness. You can put it on a more external level. I'm walking around and I see someone cheerful and we have an uplifting conversation. And that's, that's a truth too. Our vibrations cross. But if you're not permeable, you'll just walk around in the midst of all of that and you still won't feel it. If you're self-protective and I don't really want anyone to know and I'm embarrassed or I'm going to do this on my own, I don't need their help, self-realization as an individual, whatever it might be. But, I mean, don't. Which is, and this is a hard path. And uh, if we have any chance at all, the only way we have it is hanging together. That's the truth. And the, and the more fearless you are in the face of... I, I joke about it. I remember this when Shivani once... She had a terrible fever and we were so primitive in those days. We didn't have a clinic or a doctor or anything. Plus we were so such purists about things. I mean, even the concept of an aspirin wasn't in the story. So I was up with her all night with cold cloths and things just trying to break this fever and she was really miserable I asked her recently if she remembered it, she doesn't but she was really miserable and I was, she was burning up with fever and I was putting these cold cloths on her which was very unpleasant, the whole thing and she was thanking me I joked and I said, money in the bank that's what it looks like to me (laughs) tonight I'm helping you tomorrow you're helping me it's just money in the bank and so we extend ourselves kindly to others. I always think of it like this. This is my own little template that I always apply to it. If the situation were reversed, what would I want the other person to do in relationship to me? If somebody's having a really miserable time and they tell me they don't come to the service, they don't come to the class, they don't come to the house, they don't call because they didn't want to trouble me, they didn't want to bring the situation down, I would think, you know, that's, that's not what I would want. I mean, what I'm saying is if I have that same thought, oh, I don't want to trouble them, I don't want to call, I don't want to go over there. I think if someone told me that they were absenting themselves from, from my company because they didn't want to trouble me when they really needed help, Swami Kriyananda corrected me on that strongly. That was when he was in seclusion and I was in trouble. 
And uh, somebody else had to tell him I was in trouble. I was really in trouble. And somebody else told him, and he summoned me. And he said, why didn't you, why didn't you let me know? I said, well, I didn't want to trouble you. He said, he said, you insult my friendship. Whoa, I didn't mean to do that. He said that you would think that my convenience was more important than your welfare. You know, he said, I, I take that as a personal insult. And of course, that wasn't what I intended. But when you actually think about it, if you think your spiritual family is more concerned that, you know, they not have to deal with you when you're struggling... Um, but that, that one comes in in all kinds of directions. But see, he's setting it right here, and this is what we have to say to each other. Look, how we direct the virtis, how they go, but depends to a large extent on environment, and we just have to stick with each other on this. It's money in the bank. Because if it's, it's you today and them tomorrow, and them tomorrow and you, t- you the day after, and we just switch around. Durga had that beautiful dream when there was a whole huge circle of Ananda friends like this, and every so often, one of them would ascend. <laughs> you know, one of them would just turn into light and would just ascend. And she said, one, one of the things that was so sweet about the whole experience, despite the fact, in addition to the fact that we were taking turns ascending, was she said, you didn't feel any sense of jealousy or envy when someone ascended. You were just very joyful for them. You knew, you knew your turn would come. That, 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 Anything that blessed one member of our family blessed us all. It was a very, it was a very profound and important dream. And you give people a chance to help you. It's good karma for them too. I mean, you don't necessarily go and rain on their on everyone's parade. Oh, you're all having such a joyful experience. Not me. <laughs> you don't have to just be a pill. You can have a little dignity about it, but still. Is that clear? Because that's powerfully important. And then let me just add one more point. But the environment that we above all have to cling to is God because our, our lack of open-hearted willingness to accept each other is also, we often are also inwardly hiding from the divine. And just, it, it doesn't sound like we're really doing that. I mean, because you think you, you aren't. But you have to be very, very continually watchful to just really bring your consciousness up to master and bring your consciousness into your meditation and just open-heartedly just really say, this is who I am. Swamiji's response when he was explaining how master knew every single thought that they were thinking repeatedly demonstrated that he actually knew and then affirmed to me when I asked him, is that still true? And Swami said, of course. Um, and then, but in, when Master was alive, people would say, well, you know, wasn't that difficult for you? And, and Swamiji, being who he is, said, no, I was grateful for it. He said, how would I over, ever overcome things if I wasn't open to his help? Now, a lot of disciples couldn't handle it. And that just the light was too bright. But just the, the really, and it's, it's a lifetime of effort, I have to admit, certainly. Just the, the recognition of the magnitude of the hold that the ego has on us and the distance between what we can imagine for ourselves 
and often where we are. Now, what I, what I also want to say is, because this is a strange thing, we perceive that as an enormous barrier. When, when in fact, you know, the, our, the worst of our actions is just like a speck on the, on the uh, sea of infinity. And only looks large to us because we're clinging to it. So on one hand, we have to be willing to just look at the worst that we can imagine about ourselves. And at the same time, the way we free ourselves from it is we realize it just doesn't matter. The past lives of all men are just dark with many shames. We've been there, we've done it, and we carry a lot. But uh, God just doesn't care. Because it's nothing but an energy pattern, and as soon as we repudiate it, it, it's gone forever. What I was saying on Sunday about my understanding of Swami being from the bottom of the ocean to the top, and the little bit that was called Kriyananda was just this tiny little wave up there. But that, and I added, but I don't feel like I gave it the energy I wanted to. That's us. And just, that's been so helpful to me, because, you know, there's a lot up there that, we wish weren't. And I've struggled my whole life as to how to how to see it honestly, but not identify with it too much. It's a balance that I don't always hit right. But somehow if you if you realize this vast ocean of infinity, I keep looking up because we did scuba diving, so I know what that's like. You're in the bottom of the ocean, you can see the top. It's so far away and it's so small. And it's so insignificant when seen in the proper context. That doesn't mean it's any different than you actually perceive it. You may in fact be as much of a chump as you think you are. So it's not like you say that, that, that I didn't really behave like a moron. But it, uh, even being a really big moron is really small and insignificant. And this is how it's done. This is how the freedom is attained, by identifying ourselves with everything else so that when that wave just makes a little ripple, it doesn't um, define our reality. Does that help? It's very important. You can snuff out a whole incarnation if you're not careful. You can snuff out a whole incarnation if you're not careful. You can die. Remember that story of that devotee that was in the hospital and Swami went to see him on Master's behalf and he was... Just, oh, I've done so many wrong things. I've done so many wrong things. And Master was so hurt for him. Oh, I wish he wasn't saying that. But that's where we'll end up if we're not careful to direct our vrittis in the right direction. Okay? So tomorrow we'll go to, next week we'll go to 1-7.